Hey listeners, welcome to the At Intellect podcast. Today we have with us a very special guest, Roshni, who's a neuroscience undergrad from NYU, pursuing her PhD in brain and cognitive sciences from USC. She has a background in consumer behavior research and has worked with various media and marketing corporations in the industry. Roshni was previously working at an applied neuroscience startup using biometric data to understand consumer behavior. She's also a co-founder of a company called Recordless in the interactive music space. In this conversation, Roshni shares her journey from NYU to USC, how she made the decision to pursue her PhD, and then we segue into some interesting questions about the human brain, her idea with Recordless, and her launch house experience as well. This is an action-packed episode, so without further ado, let's jump straight into the show. Hey Roshni, welcome to Atom Select. It's really a pleasure to have you here. I know you have been really busy in the last few weeks, but uh, thank God you ha- now have some moments of uh, solace in your life, and then you can do do the podcast as well. So so glad that you're here. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Great. Uh, so I think I, when I was like preparing for this podcast, your journey was something which really stood out, and I was really curious to know. So I'll just briefly narrate, and then we can, you know, hit. uh like you can explain it further probably with, with your experience so uh neuroscience at, at NYU then phd in cognitive uh sciences at USC um behind your behavior podcast um recordless app launch house residency now now this is not like five people but this is just one person doing all of this and the last i checked you know we all have 24 hours in a day is it a bit different for you like how do you how do you pack all this within you know these these last few years of experience that you have yeah um i think for a long time i've always been the person who does many things at once i i don't really like just focusing on one career or one path um which has its pros and cons but i've kind of always had you know my main like academic career where i'm doing research in neuroscience and then i've always wanted to explore other things on the side whether that's industry or trying a, some startup or trying some podcast idea or something um i also have 24 hours a day i don't have anything more than other people um but i think i just kind of make a lot of lists and i always focus on whatever is due first i focus on that first and then whenever i have extra time i try to do some of those side projects awesome awesome so we'll dive into you know each of these experience in, in much of the detail but i think before we start i i was just very curious to know like uh like when growing up uh, you know probably your high school days what kind of student were you like how did those building blocks formed which took you to taking neuroscience at nyu and then phd and and you know going into that direction so how how was growing up like Yeah it's actually really funny because I think I was like a terrible student in high school. Okay. I was always the person who would I would walk into class and be like, "Oh my god, do we have a test today?" like I would be doing homework in like the lunchroom before class. Um do not recommend that for people in high school now. But yeah, I wasn't I honestly was not the best student in high school. I kind of found out about neuroscience pretty late, like during my junior senior year, and I kind of was like a fan in terms of science like i was a fan of biology across like biochem and physics which were really the only sciences that my high school had 
Um, and then I found out about neuroscience and I was like, okay, this is actually really interesting. I think this might be what I want to go down. And then kind of fell into like a rabbit hole and only looked at schools that were had a neuroscience degree or had something related to neuroscience. Um, and it was crazy because I found it through like an AP economics class that I was taking. They like talked about this field called neuroeconomics. And I was like, this sounds really cool. It's all about like human behavior, how people act and like why they act the way they do, why they make the decisions they do more specifically. And yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. But in high school and like before that, I think I was always very inquisitive, but I wasn't the best like student because I don't think I was studying what I wanted yet. Awesome. So you, you were always intrigued about, you know, the working of the brain and, and, and stuff like that, which really attracted you to get neuroscience at NYU. Can you just in, in very briefly touch base upon the experience at NYU? Because I think being in New York, it's kind of a different vibe altogether. And probably can you draw some parallels between like the overall USC experience and the NYU experience, how different or similar they are? Yeah, very, very different. Um, so NYU does not have a campus basically at all. It has buildings just dropped in the middle of like Washington Square Park and like kind of scattered around Manhattan. Mm -hmm. um, so I moved there and I was, I've always been like young for my grades. I was 17 years old, moving into the city, lived on Broadway. Like I would go to class and for weeks I would not see anyone I knew because it was okay. just New York City. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of a crazy experience. I know like my mom, when I was choosing schools, didn't want me to do NYU because it was no college experience at all. It was like, you're basically just living in the city as a teenager. Um, and I definitely feel like I kind of missed out on that college experience where you're like wearing your USC gear and like walking around campus and you're so excited to be there. Um, there was no like NYU pride or like college student vibe. Um, so going to school here at USC has definitely been very much like I feel like I'm getting that college experience that I missed out. Um, like when I joined USC, I was telling everyone when I was at NYU, I ended up graduating a full year early. So I didn't have my senior year. Um, so that was like, I was like kind of sad about that when I was leaving NYU. And then I told everyone that my first year at USC was basically like my senior year that I never got. Um, so it's been really fun. Like I, this year for the past, like first year of my PhD, I've been living very close to campus. Um, I'm on campus every day. I'm like surrounded by all these college students. So it's definitely kind of brought that like college experience that I missed back, which is awesome. 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 So NYU was something like just, uh, leaving your apartment to go to another apartment like because I've, I've seen a building like in the pictures and it's like it's just you know uh middle of the city so I, I can relate to that experience but yeah USC definitely a great campus and all, all the things that come with it that's great yeah great um moving ahead so just wanted to touch base upon your uh, experience at at Spark Neuro as a research analyst. If you can just tell us about like what, what Spark Neuro is and then what were your uh, like KRAs out there and then what impact that you made within the team uh, during your time there. Um, I think this happened between NYU and USC, right? Like after your uh, neuroscience degree before your PhD. Yeah, so um, after I left NYU, I actually worked at Stanford for one year doing um, also neuroimaging work, like working in a lab. That was also an awesome experience. And then I kind of 
met some people out near near um, Stanford. It was in Silicon Valley, so there was a, a big culture of VC firms and like startups and this entire kind of world that was almost like pretty new at that time. Um, and I met some people who were neuroscience PhDs or had a neuroscience background who were working with startups. And they kind of told me that, you know, school is always going to be there, like going to your PhD or med school or whatever it is that you do after undergrad is always going to be an option that's not going to go anywhere. But the kind of field of these startups and like everyone starting something new and getting funding for like ideas that are just based out of like people's heads with like no physical office or, you know, physical team yet. Um, mm -hmm. That kind of culture was just starting out and was kind of unprecedented. Like we didn't really see that in the past. So it really pushed me to go start, try out a startup and see what was actually happening there, especially because everyone was trying to add like the brain and psychology into like these companies. And I was like, how are you doing that when we know so little about the brain? So I was like, let me go try out one of them. Um, I moved back to New York. I was working at Spark Neuro and I was pretty early on. I think I was employee like number 12 or 13, which was an awesome experience to be that, you know, like that early in a company. Um, it was overall a company that was looking at consumer behavior. So we were using biometric data, including like skin response, eye tracking, um, some EEG data. So like brain waves and using all that data kind of put together to understand how people were responding to content. Mm -hmm. So initially it started out with doing advertising content. So people would show us some ad that they're working on and they would be like, how do I make this ad better? How do I make it more engaging and stir more emotion for my audience? So we were able to look at, <clears throat> sorry, emotion and attention and in, in how these consumers were reacting. And then it kind of expanded further from just advertising and we looked at um, like, for example, I worked with Chase Bank and we looked at like retirement values, like how people, if they were to plan for retirement, what do they value and where do they want to like save their money and put their money into? We did something about um, climate change and what kind of wording has the most emotion and causes the most attention towards climate change. And we actually found out that instead of calling it climate change, calling it a climate crisis actually causes mm -hmm. more attention. People like pay more attention okay. to it and it causes more um, emotion. So it was really cool. It was able, I was able to like see how you could use biometric data in industry. Um, and obviously there's pros and cons in doing science and in industry. Like it's really cool to have more money because people are like paying you a lot more than, than you do in academia. Not even just like as a personal salary, but like the amount of funding you get to collect the data and analyze the data and buy the right equipment. Um, and then in terms of like cons, you're always answering to a client or to an investor or someone. So sometimes when like the science doesn't show what you want it to show, there can be like tension because they're like, we want it to tell us that the client's always right, obviously, or like the client wants to see some result and the results not coming out. So it was definitely a good experience and showed me like, what can go right and what can also go wrong when you're trying to add science into industry and like almost sell it in a way that isn't done in, in a lab. Great, great. That's, that's phenomenal experience. I think you were working on some, some stuff which, like, which are like the, the core things currently. And like, I, couldn't, I can only imagine the breadth of experience that you got working at uh, Spark Nero. I have some interesting questions related to what you did 
as a research analyst and you know your field of study but i'll park it for the later uh, later part of the episode um how uh, so you were doing all this phenomenal stuff so then how did you decide of the like going for phd at usc like did you always have it in in your mind or the back of your mind that i have to do it and how did you make that decision that you know you leave that working experience and you know go return to 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 campus basically yeah it's definitely not like the traditional path to academia or the traditional path to a phd um most people like prioritize obviously like being in a lab for a long time getting a lot of experience maybe getting a paper or publication out um i kind of i think since i was like a kid was always like i want to be a doctor and i didn't really know what that meant like it was just like in my head to be a doctor not even because my parents were telling me to or anything just because i myself thought it was like a cool profession to have and you talk to a lot of people and all this stuff and initially when i was like a kid it was like me wanting to be a pediatrician and then as i got into um nyu i was pre med so i thought i would become a doctor through that and then the more i started learning about like okay there's this other type of doctor which is a phd like obviously not the same doctor but there's another path that you can take in science that you get some kind of higher degree and higher education um and it's not like the most common thing at least like when i was in undergrad like we didn't really talk about phd as an option it was like if you were pre med or a bio major or any of these like hard sciences the path would be getting your doing your mcat and going into med school um so then when i was working at stanford after nyu i learned a lot more about the phd route there was also a clinical phd route which is doing clinical psych i was actually working under a clinical psychologist at the time so i started exploring that more and then thinking about okay like when i see myself as a doctor like what does that mean to me like what do i actually want to do and even when i was at in industry i saw the value of having this like very rigorous science background and having that add to your experience in industry um like really understanding like how to do research right how to like how to really interpret the results you get and not just like run some code to analyze data but like understand why you're running it like what you're actually looking for and like you know having some kind of purpose behind the actions you take with the data that you collect um and then i think yeah i think phd was always like in the back of my mind it was just i had the idea of med school for for a while so i thought about med school looked into the mcat and then my cousin who i did the behind your behavior podcast with um she's in med school she's actually starting her second year of her residency right now and she was always like we were always like on parallel paths um she was also neuroscience major undergrad also pre med and like also kind of thinking but she was always like set on like i will do my med school like i will be a doctor in that sense and i was always like on the fence so it was really helpful having someone that was like very similar to me doing something doing like the path that i was thinking of um so when she got into med school she went to med school straight out of undergrad and so when i was like at spark and at stanford and trying out all these different things she was like first year of med school second year of med school like really seeing like going through her rotations and like seeing the progression of that um so i think that kind of helped me make the decision of like okay phd is the like grad school or higher education choice i want to take um because i saw what she was doing and i was it was actually really helpful to see it and 
Um, when I was at Stanford, my PI told me this like really helpful piece of advice when she was like doing a PhD is like writing a protocol and like creating things that haven't been created. And in med school, it's really like studying the protocol and applying the protocol. And both have a lot of value and both of them are necessary, but it's whether you want to be creating the protocol or if you just want to be following it. And I was like, yeah, I want to be creating it. So I think that's kind of how I made my ultimate decision. Great, great. That's an interesting story. And um, soon enough, like you and your uh, sister would be doctors and like, like your sister would be, you know, probably the doctor of the body and you'd be probably the doctor of the mind uh, with all these subjects. So that, that'd be an interesting, interesting equation. Um, that's great. Um, so can you, can you share a little bit about the admission process? Like how, how does, uh, like the PhD admissions work. I was actually recently talking to like a distant cousin of mine and they they are also into research. Uh, I mean, he's based in India, um, but he's in the process of applying to UK for a PhD. And he mentioned that uh, the only way that you can apply to, to, to PhD, I'm not sure if that's like UK specific or it's, it's like the general thing uh, around is by, you know, approaching approaching a professor and then you know trying to like telling them like what you're doing within research within academia and then probably they would accept you within the program it is something like that i have zero idea of how phd admissions work but if you can just share it very briefly i think that'd be great yeah so i can oh my god i can do a whole separate podcast on that admissions process it's a whole political thing, but it's also like very self-driven. It's very like independent. Um, so yeah, it's not at all really anything like undergrad applications or med school applications where you're really looking at the institution as a whole. Um, obviously there's been like pros and cons of looking at the full institution. You want to go to an institution that you respect and like has good funding structures and things like that, has good support for students. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really all dependent on professor or your PI that you're going to be working with, you're really spending five years within that person's lab and not really like within USC as a whole. You're like, I'm really working at the Brain Creativity Institute at USC. So the people I work with are the people who are mostly making all my decisions. Obviously, I'm part of the larger department as well, but I really don't interact much with the rest of USC or like any other departments or anything like that. I'm sure there's like background things that you know, allow me to have my funding the way the structure is and all that stuff. But yeah, it's very much like you have to really research the lab and the professors that, that you're working with, because that's the person that's going to be guiding you through your five to seven or more years. Um, so I actually applied twice. The first year did not get into anything, um, which is actually very common. It's, it's pretty common for someone to have to apply more than once to, to grad school, which can be pretty discouraging because you like put a lot of time and effort into one application. Um, and for every single school, you're it's so individual to the school because it's again individual to those professors. So you can't really have like one common app essay or something that you're sending out to all the schools. Um, so yeah, so the first year I applied to I think like 11 or 12 schools, got 11 or 12 rejections. Second year I applied, got some interviews, and then got into my one like top program, which was USC. And yeah, you apply really to the professors themselves. You have to look at their past research. You have to look at, are they publishing a lot? Look at like 
where their past grad students are going. Um, and there's some professors who are very renowned and well-known who like maybe you've read about in your textbooks, but since they're more like established, maybe mm -hmm. right now they're not doing as much because they've gotten tenure and maybe they're publishing less because they're like now a respected faculty member. And then yeah. there's pros and cons of obviously going with a, with a more established faculty member versus a, a smaller one. Um, so you really have to take a lot of things into consideration and like for every single professor I talk to, I also try to talk to two or three of their grad students before even applying. So for every single school or program that I looked at, I would find like four to five professors within those four to five professors, two to three grad students per professor. So I had these like crazy like Excel type sheets with like, I talked to this person and like labeled them as like this person said, yes, they're taking students and their wow. grad students said, yes, they're a good advisor. And it's a lot of like keeping track of who you're emailing. It's a lot of emails, a lot of like phone calls. Um, so the second time I applied, I think I started applying in like February or something, like started the entire application process again in, in around February, March um, for a December application date. So almost a full year of applications. Um, if you count like the year before, it was almost a year and a half of of applying. Um, and then once you submit your application, then you have to go through the interview process and like do mock interviews and all that stuff. So definitely a very intense process to get into a school, but it makes sense because they're, first of all, investing in you as a student. Like I'm not getting, I'm not paying for grad school. Yeah. A lot of these programs, especially in the US are fully funded. Um, so they're really investing in you. You're kind of like an employee basically because you're yeah. doing research for the university. And again, like it's a five-year commitment on your part as well. So you want to put in as much effort into like almost interviewing the school and the professor as they are into you. So it's like a two-way street. No, definitely. I think that that really makes sense. And also you're doing some, some of the really important and life-changing work, right? Like research drives humanity forward. So it's definitely, definitely really important work that you're doing, which there involves that that kind of homework on on both the sides for the university as well and for you as well, which which is great. Um, I was like I was personally in in a myth all these years that you know you you can only do a PhD if you have a master's degree, which I recently realized is probably not required. So I think you also went straight after your bachelor's. So yeah. like a master's degree is not required for PhD, right? I think for some PhDs, they prefer it. It depends on like what the field is in. Um, when I was actually graduating NYU, I, I did have that extra year. So I could have done a master's or something. Um, and I talked to a lot of professors and they were like, if you're doing a PhD, especially in neuroscience or psychology, they're not specifically looking for a master's. Um, that being said, I do have a lot of peers in my program right now who did have a master's. Um, it doesn't necessarily make sense to do a master's in the exact same field. So to do a master's in psychology before doing your PhD in psychology, because at the end of your second year, the, with the coursework that you're, you've done, you can actually apply for a master's. So a lot of the second years in my lab have just applied and gotten their master's in psychology because you're kind of like completing that coursework within, within the PhD itself. So um, yeah, I think, I think for neuroscience, for biology, for some of these fields, it's not necessary. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, great. Um, 
So just want to know a bit more about your current experience at USC. Um, like how has it been since now? It is like PhD really tough. Uh, like probably med school is, is tough. So how do you compare that with, with PhD? Definitely the subjects that you're taking are, are really uh, difficult, but how do you feel like the pressure and everything? Um, so I have, I do have obviously my cousin in med school. I have a lot of my friends from undergrad are also in med school. My like best friends from undergrad. Um, so I would say it's a very, very different kind of difficulty. Um, in med school, you're on like a schedule. You have your entire class in the same classes as you, like kind of in the same stage. Obviously people are pursuing different specialties, but there's pretty, there's a pretty rigid like schedule and, and like set of what you, what classes you have to take, what milestones you have to hit. Um, I think in PhD, it's so individual. I think that's what I had to adjust to a lot. Like my whole first semester, I didn't see a single one of my, like my class is 21 people. I didn't see any of them like at all the whole first semester, unless they had like specific psych grad student meetups. Um, so that was a little bit interesting because I thought there would be more of like a sense of like student community and like college type feeling. Um, but it's very, very individual. So like I had three classes my first semester, did not have any classes with any of the first years. Um, I think there were maybe a couple in one of my classes. Um, this past semester, I had one of the classes where I had a lot more of the first year students. And I think I like chose that on purpose so I could be with more of them. Um, but in terms of just like day to day, it's so self-driven that like there's days where I don't need to be on campus at all. There's some days where I'm on campus until like 8 p.m. because I'm like scanning and running subjects and doing all this stuff. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a different type of difficulty because there's no one really like telling you you need to push out this much research or do whatever at a certain time, um, obviously depending on your advisor, but it's it's very much like, okay, like I know I'm on this project, so I wanna get this much done in the next week or like I wanna set this deadline for myself. But a lot of it is just, on your own time. Like if you're on a project, like that's all self-driven kind of. So especially the first year also, you're still like getting used to the lab. You're kind of like half on some projects. You don't really have your own research project yet. And obviously when you have your own research project, there's a lot more work that goes into it because you are the one driving all the data collection and analysis and recruitment and all those things. Um, but being on other people's projects, it's like, I like kind of have these things to do, but like, it's not mine. So like, it has to be very like, again, self-driven of like, I need to get this done at a certain amount of time for this project or this paper that I want to publish or whatever. So it's been very much like trying to figure out what my workflow is like. Um, mm -hmm. This is the first time where I'm not like, like you don't have a boss giving you a deadline or a client giving you a deadline or yeah. um, you're not, you don't have like tests every two weeks like we had an undergrad or whatever it is. Um, so it's, it's been very much like, I have to make a lot of lists. Like I said, like I make a lot of lists to be like, okay, I have to get this thing done and this thing done and like setting my own priorities kind of and being mm -hmm. like, okay, I think this is what is more, most important like because there's not really like set due dates for things. Um, so it's been interesting because it's not like, it's very different from any type of school I've ever been to or like 
any job I've ever been to. And it's a different type of like workload and things like that. So it's been nice because it's very, like you set your own schedule and you can work it out with your PI. Um, like from the beginning, I told my PI, like I cannot do mornings. I like don't wake up in the morning. My brain does not work in the morning. So yeah. he knows like I will be up until like 3 a.m. working. And okay. it's good because my PI is like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's been cool to be able to like set basically your own schedule. And it's also given me the time to like do some of these other endeavors, like record lists and, and work on some of these side projects as well. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on those. I think those are the interesting pieces of the conversation. A, a couple of questions. So because, because the PhD is so much self-driven, how do you like keep yourself on track and keep yourself motivated? Like, are you somebody who's like a self-motivated person who doesn't need like exams to study or are you somebody who study because they're they are exams? No, I think I'm very, I'm very much like I, even like in undergrad, like I would want to know the information and I, I really hate like studying something just to memorize it for a test, okay. which like made studying a lot harder because everyone, all my other friends would just be like, just like memorize this answer. And then you just remember it for the test. And I was like, I want to understand why that's the answer. So I'm very bad at just like copying people's stuff or like, you know, just like doing things just to have it for the test. Um, I very much want to like understand the reasons behind it. Um, So I think that's been helping with like, it's very self-motivated. Another big thing about PhD is like, you need to be like very, very interested in the topic. It needs to be your passion. And they can kind of see through that, especially in the application process, if you're just kind of reading off of a script or just reading off of their lab website and being like, oh, you did a project on this. So I think that's interesting. Um, You need to have very original ideas and have reasons again, like what I was saying before of like why you're analyzing the data the way you are, how you're interpreting the results. Um, So I think that helps a lot with like the self-motivation is I'm genuinely interested in the stuff we're researching. So I want to analyze and find the results or I want to collect the data and, you know, like doing scans on campus and like doing these like working with participants and getting all the data, um, even though it's not like my personal dissertation project, I'm very, very interested in it. And it's what I will hopefully use in some of the projects I pursue in my PhD. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's a lot of like self-interest that's driving motivation. Awesome, awesome. That's great. Um, cool. Another thing I'm very curious about because of, just because of breadth of experience, uh, so what does the future look for you? Or should I say, what does the future look for Dr. Roshni? Is it academia, like research, private research, entrepreneurship? What's on your mind currently? Ah, well, here in Dr. Roshni, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, um, I don't, I'm pretty bad at like planning for the future. And I still have another four years of the program. So things will very very likely change um I think I see myself at least based on even my background working like in industry trying to still do like science in industry I kind of see myself going down that route um there's a lot of depending on like the professor and the the culture of the university there are places where they're very closed off to industry and they think like it's kind of like the dark side like you don't want people to go to industry because it's all money driven and like that's true to a certain sense. Like you are, as I said before, answering to a client or answering to your investor at all times. 
Um, but I think there's a way to do science right in industry and try to keep that like rigor of science where you're not just like arbitrarily changing numbers to match what a client says. Um, and like doing things in the right way and using science to explain results in the right way that maintains like the rigor of science that we have in academia and brings it into industry where there's like more resources, more visibility. I think that's like one of the big things I've seen is in academia, again, depending on the lab and the situation and the circumstances, um, sometimes there's findings that are really, really cool, but they're in this little bubble and people in like the real world in quotes, um, don't really hear about it. Like there's technologies I've worked with in, in academia that people in industry, like a majority of my friends have no idea it exists, like are right. completely closed off to it. And that's just not of their fault. It's just like this divide that's like kind of always been a thing. Um, so I kind of see myself bridging that gap and it's not necessarily like the most common path. Um, but I think like I have a pretty non-traditional past, so I'm okay with having like a non-traditional future as well. That's great. That's great. Definitely, definitely won't be traditional. And I think it won't be easy, but I think it'll be very fulfilling as a career, which I can sense. So yeah, really all the best wishes for that. And I hope you achieve that. Um, I, I was, I, I'm itching to ask you questions around your podcast, but I'll hold that thought for a second. I have like three questions, which which I'm very curious about. And I always wanted somebody who understands the brain to come on the podcast so that I can ask them uh, these questions. They, they kind of keep me up at night. I mean, not literally, but yeah, like something I'm, I'm really curious to ask people these days. So the first one is um, during your, I think starting from your NYU experience and you know, at USC as well, what is something about the human brain which, like, which was kind of, you know, like this eye-opening moment or something which really fascinates you, like it blows your mind? Um, there's so many things. I think one of them is that we're constantly learning about functions of the brain that we like previously thought we, like we were like, yeah, we got that part of the brain set, like that does this function and that's it. And now we're realizing like all these areas like for example, the visual system, like we thought we had the visual system figured out, like when I was in undergrad basically, and we're constantly learning about it. Like now we're realizing that it's involved in these other behaviors and other processing that we just like didn't think of before. So I think that's one thing that has really blown my mind. But another one is that I think there's a common perception that brain cells, when they die, they die. You can't grow them back. And that is true to a certain extent. Um, but again, like what I was saying with those technologies that, that I've worked with in the past, there's certain technologies that actually can like regrow connections and like cause your brain cells to kind of build connections that may have died off in the past. And I think that's, that like really blew my mind that you were able to see these like drastic changes. It's, um, there's a couple different types of brain stimulation, but I worked with transcranial magnetic stimulation, and that's literally sending magnetic pulses to an area of the brain that can cause like drastic changes in behavior. Like it's been FDA approved to treat um, major depressive disorder, which is crazy because it's these people who like have tried to be, to be able to take that treatment. You have to have tried three different types of therapy or three different types of like um, recovery basically. Like it, 
can't just be like three different medications. It has to be like, you tried medication, you tried therapy, you tried like some other method. And those three separate methods all didn't work. So we can go in and try TMS. And it has like literally changed people's lives. Like we, we were using it for people who were in rehab for alcohol use. And we, it was a double blind study. So we didn't know exactly who got it and they didn't know if they got it. Um, but it was wild to see like some of the differences. I was like, this person definitely got it or maybe it's a placebo effect, but it's, mm-hmm. it was like, we saw people's lives entirely change um, just by like literally just sending magnetic pulses to their brain, not any surgery, not any like cutting into their skull, like just putting this, like, obviously it's a huge machine. It's very expensive yeah. and it's very advanced technology, but like at the, the, base of it is really just sending magnetic pulses to an area of the brain and causing those brain cells to like regrow their connection. So I think that was like one of the most like eye-opening, like mind-blowing things. And I was directly working with it. So it was really cool to see that firsthand. Wow, that's great. Uh, it's great that you've got an opportunity to work in for a, for a problem which is really widespread and you know really causing a lot of damage uh, which is which is really a good opportunity and I really hope that you progress forward uh, with that that's that's great and yeah I think general you know it, it always fascinates me like uh, I think I have uh, I heard in a podcast or read somewhere like we still have very limited knowledge about the human brain all these years of experience so there's so much to explore which I think is really fascinating for you as well right like you have so much to deep like dive deep into and there's there'll be new stuff around every day um yeah I mean there's pros and cons to that it's there's obviously like it's exciting that there's so much to research as a researcher but it's mm-hmm. also like we're kind of like basing our research off of nothing kind of okay. um like there's this whole like a replication problem that's still ongoing now in psychology research that a lot of these findings that we like learned and based our research off of are being like disproven now so now we're like we built all this all these research like all this research and all these studies off of these like core beliefs and core claims that previous researchers told us and now those claims are false so now we're like what happened to all the research we built on top of it um so it's scary in some senses, but it's also like exciting. It depends on how you. Yeah, look at that's it. that's that's great. Um, and I think so. This this makes me remember. So I think I keep on ch- like uh, I was going through like your Twitter feed while I was waiting for the podcast just to get a sense of what you're doing. So th- I think you tweeted a couple of weeks back that you know it was something like like we don't we really don't know too much about the brain or nothing about the brain, something like that, right? So yeah, it's 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 really, I think it's it's a very curious act to, you know, really study this. And uh, because you, you know that you have a limited data set that you have to work upon, but, you know, the, the, the whole field is so fascinating that I think, I think like when you spend too many years around this, you overall work that you do would be very, very much rewarding and satis- uh, satisfying as well. So I think that's that's great. Um, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I do a lot of research before I have guests on. I would go to their Twitter or Instagram, read their book that they have or, or a podcast that they're doing. So yeah, that's part of the process. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, the second question is, uh, it's around AI. I think you did a did a talk on AI pretty pretty recently. Um, so the, the majority of AI that we currently have is more or less like a general AI. Uh, do you think that there's a possibility in in the near future or the distant future that we are able to replicate like toe to toe what the human brain does with the machine? Like, how do you think about these these things? Yeah, so I'm not an AI expert by any means. Um, so I definitely could say things that are wrong, but yeah. I think we're, I mean, first of all, again, we, we know so little about the human brain that it's hard to say if we're replicating the human brain in the way that the brain actually works because we are still learning that. Um, but I think in terms of AI, there's, so what I study is like empathy and emotion. And I think that's the key in what separates us from machines because AI and just a computer in general will make every decision based off of logic and humans are not logical in a majority I think of their lives. Um, and emotions like strongly influence the way we make decisions, the way we behave. And not only just like if the, if the decision itself is an emotional decision, but if you are just angry one day, like you'll make a different decision than if you're happy for a lot of people. Um, so I think that is what's lacking. Like an AI machine isn't just like pissed off at someone for a day and like making different decisions suddenly. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of like, my talk was mostly surrounding empathy and AI. So like not only just recognizing that someone else feels a certain type of way in a situation that like if someone like spills a drink on themselves or something that'll like make them upset, um, but actually embodying that feeling is what's missing from AI. I think at least in the early stages of, of artificial empathy right now. Mm -hmm. So I think when we get closer to this idea of embodied AI where an AI agent is able to actually have some type of like homeostasis almost where they're feeling a benefit or a risk or a harm to themselves and is mm -hmm. able to then project that onto someone else and really embody what someone else is feeling rather than just predict what someone else is feeling. I think that'll get us closer, but mm. I think there's always going to be this sense that an AI or, or any computer is going to be more logical at a baseline than humans are, which is why like we see AI machines like outperforming humans at so many stages and like especially in like the medical field, like looking at radiology and things like that, like we're seeing AI, these algorithms like predict and, and identify like diseases or cancer at such a higher rate. Um, because I think it's again, like that base of logic, but also like the computational power that you can encode into a computer or an agent is a lot higher, at least from what we know right now in terms of what the brain does. Um, so I think there might be a point, but there's always going to be a difference in like humans inherently are emotional creatures. And we have like this reptilian brain, which is like the very, very base of our brain, which is like this, the immediate fight or flight that we have, like whenever you yeah. see some situation. Um, and that's kind of always going to be the base of our brain. And we're not like starting with logic and going down. It's more like we're starting with emotion and then going to logic at least in the way we think of it today. Um, and I think that's always gonna be a divide between AI and humans. 
Great, great. Thanks for the detailed answer. Now I have some more food for thought to, you know, think about when I cannot sleep at the night. Uh, yeah, so, there's always uh, things to think about at night. Yeah, uh, great. The last one, if we can touch base on very quickly, something which really fascinates me a lot as well is uh, what do you think about the idea of what I think is going with the trend, like putting chips in the brain, something like Neuralink or but what not we're, we're trying to do with the brain. Like, is it a good, good progress? Uh, I mean, what are your views of, of, about it? Yeah, I honestly, I don't know too much about that field. I know it's like emerging and there's a lot of new technology coming out. Um, I think it'll be a while until we get it right. Because again, we like still don't fully understand how the brain works. So even in terms of like surgeries that we do when we're like, cutting into certain areas of the brain, like we don't fully understand what those areas do. Um, so if you're doing a surgery on it or placing a chip in there, it'll take a while for it to like be at the stage that I think they want it to be at. Um, I think we have certain things that we're better at, like for example, like stimulation. I think we're getting better at that. It's getting FDA approval and like we're doing a lot more studies on how like stimulation affects the brain. But in terms of adding chips into the brain, I think it gets a little scary. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's, I think it'll be a while until it gets to like a stage where it's gonna be like FDA approved or accepted in, in just like the academic community. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be a tough, tough thing to do. Like in my opinion, I think, we should leave the brain as it is and not like not mess around with it because the negative aspects of it really uh, drive me crazy at times. But yeah, I think, I mean, humanity drives forward anyhow. So oh, like we can't really stop what, what what's about to happen. But if we are able, like with AI as well, if we are able to really take care of the negative aspects of it, I think that's a, that's a great tech advancement altogether. And same with chips, I think. If it's, if it's done for the betterment of humanity, why not? Awesome. Uh, this brings probably like us to the, probably my favorite part of the pod podcast, because it's really awesome if another podcast host is, is on the podcast, because it's a, it's a good opportunity for me to learn about how they, how they came across the idea and everything else, how they're finding the guests and how they are trying to promote their podcasts. So I think at the start of the pandemic, you started behind your behavior podcast uh, with your with your sister, uh, I guess. So just wanted to know, like, how did the idea came along? And then how did you guys uh, think about, you know, having the podcast? How do you how did you do the like ideation of how the first few episodes would be? How would you get the guests and stuff like that? Yeah, so it honestly was not our idea at all. <laughs> like oh, it was me okay. and my cousin Tina. Um, and it was just the pandemic. We would just like be on the phone a lot and like talk to each other about like mostly the brain because we were both like obsessed with the brain. Okay. Um, and we would just like kind of have these like long conversations. And Tina's older brother, my other cousin, um, has a company in, in the crypto area doing like research and consulting. Um, and they were actually coming out with a lot of podcasts themselves and he had a lot of members of his team. They actually, I think now have like a couple different podcasts. They don't even just have one. 
Um, and he was like, this is like a growing media format, basically. Like people are learning a lot more through podcasts, especially in the pandemic. Like there's a lack of like schooling and interaction with other people. So you want to at least listen to other people talk. So, you know, you kind of get that human connection back for a lot of people. Um, so he was like, you guys are on the phone constantly. Just like put a mic in front of you and just record it and then release it. So he literally made a website for us, made a Twitter for us, made like our artwork, mailed us, mailed us um, mics. Like a mic just showed up to my house one day and he was like, just do it. He was like, I will set everything up for you. Just record something. So he was like, I know obviously me and me and Tina both have connections in academia. She was at UPenn for undergrad. I was at NYU and we were both always involved in like the science field, the medical field. Um, so we had connections to a lot of professors that either we had worked with in the past, or I was talking to for grad school or Tina had like done a rotation with or something. And so we were like, let's just reach out to some of these people that we already have good connections with and see if anyone would be our first guest. Like, let's just see if anyone says yes to this. And we actually got a really awesome guest from UPenn, Professor Michael Platt, um, that I was, I was talking to throughout my application process. And he was like a very, very strong first guest. We were like, okay, like if we can get him as a first guest, like maybe we're on to something. And so we recorded our first intro episode where it was just me and Tina, like, it was actually hilarious because we like scripted it all out. Like I, every single word I said was written down. So if you listen to us talking, it's just like, okay, Tina, what about you? And it's so like awkward and static. It's like a sitcom. Um, yeah, literally it was so, it was so funny. But then um, when we had like our first guest, it was just such an easy conversation because it was literally like, we were both interested in his work anyways. And I was like, I just get to talk to you about your work and like ask you whatever I think is interesting and just record it and then release it. Um, and then obviously like releasing it, as you know, like editing it and all that stuff actually takes the most amount of time than like recording the podcast is really fun. And then all the work to like release it is actually a little less fun um yeah. but yeah once we had that first guest it was a lot of like twitter a lot of just emailing people um and it was awesome because i was applying to grad school anyway so it was just like making connections that i wouldn't need to be making anyways for for my applications and it all just like worked out really well um and honestly stemmed from i was applying to grad school my cousin tina was applying to her residency and I had already applied once, didn't get into anything. And I was like, I want to do something that differentiates myself a little bit more. And I didn't really hear of any students and Tina didn't hear of any of her med school friends that were doing a podcast or had their own podcast or kind of like, even like a blog or anything like that, that was just sh showcasing science. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very passionate about like communicating science for the general public and not like talking about papers and like analysis and like p-values and like all these like technical things and just being like, this was the general finding. This is why it's important for the real world. And really, again, like what I was saying before, like bridging that gap and showing some findings that maybe are still in like the academic bubble and like bringing that into the general public. Um, so it was an awesome opportunity. Like we really like did not expect it to get as big as it did. Like we got some really, really awesome guests. Like there was a professor from NYU that I had always wanted to take his course. His name's Joseph Ledoux always wanted to take his course on like the emotional brain and it was always closed because I was never a senior so seniors always get got first pick of the classes and I never got to be in his class so I was like I'm going to email him because I just want an hour of his time 
which is basically like a private lecture for me. So we were able to get him on the podcast. It was awesome to like, just hear from these professors. And I was like, I've been a huge fan of you since like high school. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an awesome opportunity. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. A couple of things. I mean, uh, starting with, I can relate to when you say that, you know, you, you're talking to your cousin's sister and, you know, you thought of like, you're talking to her about the brain and the sciences about an hour you could record it as a podcast i can really relate to it because when like now i have i have a podcast and you know i talk to my friends like after 30 minutes they would say you know we could just record this conversation and you could put it on your podcast and it's it's hilarious because uh like i'm like you know like let's not make everything con like a content right so yeah it's 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 a bit hilarious conversation nowadays with, with friends uh, so that's that's great and I did listen to a couple of episodes of, of the podcast while preparing for, for the for the conversation because I really wanted to dig deep into like what's the theme of the podcast and, and stuff like that and I really liked uh, the way you and your sister really uh, carry carry the conversation which is really really professional uh, although you have it's not a like you've done for like one, one and a half, two years. Uh, but it really sounds very professional. And I think it brings a lot of good things out of guests. Uh, I, I I think I told you before as well, I did listen to this episode uh, with Rohit, uh, I think. And it was very informative. Like like generally when I'm preparing for, for the episodes, I would like, if, they, if somebody has a podcast, I would listen to like a couple of episodes in pieces to get the context and idea of like who they are talking to, what they're talking about. But the episode with Rohit was actually very informative for me because he covered a lot of aspects about entrepreneurship and his journey. So I think overall, I think the podcast has a very good vibe to it. And definitely you got, you have, you must have seen a good growth across the, the time that you did. Uh, but I think for some reason you put it on a pause, any plans do you have, you know, just restarted in the future? Yeah, we kind of paused because I, I started the PhD program and um, Tina started her residency. So there really like was not much time in terms of like finding new guests and all that stuff. Um, it's actually so funny because Rohit's also our other cousin. We just wow. like, he has a different last name like, as us. Your family is like super star achievers. <laughs> they're all it's because of like my older cousins like Rohit and then Tina's older brother and Neil are both always have like this entrepreneurial spirit and they've yeah. really like pushed the rest of the cousins like the younger cousins and they're like just do literally everything yeah. um so even like in terms of starting the podcast like if I didn't have like a Neil pushing us to do it I don't think yeah that was a great story indeed. yeah 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 I don't think we would have done it ourselves um but yeah, I've, I've thought of starting it again. I'm trying to see if I have time with school and everything to be able to do it. It's actually, I've been thinking of doing something because I'm at USC now. So I have a lot of exposure to other grad students, other faculty members, like even within psychology, um, within this department, but also like just across USC overall. Um, and I even thought it would be really cool to talk about because I have this cohort of like 20 people of like even just talking to them about their path to grad school, I think it would be really helpful for students who are applying and just like understanding that there's not just one path, like you don't have to go from undergrad straight to grad school or undergrad master's grad school. Um, there's so many different like paths you can take to it. 
So I've been thinking about doing like a series on that. Um, I think right now with like school and then also record lists, it's been pretty yeah. busy. But um, once I get some time, I definitely want to jump back into it. Yeah, I can get that point because as you said, you know, the, the recording experience is great, but then you have to do the editing, you have to do promotion and, and stuff. So that that is a bit overwhelming, but I think I think it's it's rewarding. So if you can get some pockets of time between your schedule, I think you can just carry it over. And I think from a networking standpoint, as you mentioned, it's a great, great tool, right? Because it can open certain avenues for you. It can lead you to certain people, which I don't think otherwise it is possible, no matter how hard you try. Because for me as well, like before the podcast, I was like, I was like a, just a normal analyst uh, working at Expedia, right? Who, who really knew me, but this platform really gave me an opportunity to talk to like really a bunch of really amazing people who could have, could have never networked if, if it was not for this podcast. So I would, I would really, really encourage you to do it again as you find time uh, and would love to hear more episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great. You mentioned record list, so we'll just drop into it. Uh, I was browsing the website and really fascinated with the idea about, uh, you know, you're, I think, building something for the Web3, really bridging the gap between creators, music. Music has definitely been a very important part of my life as well. I, I spend countless hours on Spotify every day, whether it is podcasts or music, songs, anything else. Um, a brief brief introduction, like how did the idea came along and how did you gather the team together to, to build this? If you can just simplify the, the idea for the audience so that they can get, get an eye of what you're trying to do with it regardless. Yeah, so um, the idea is basically making music more dynamic and interactive for fans and for artists. Um, so on the fan side, like every time you listen to a song, it sounds static, but this is allowing the song and the music to really match your mood or your vibe of the day. So whether that's skipping around the song and only playing certain verses or certain parts of it, or physically changing the way the song sounds to make it more slow or fast or more exciting or whatever that might be um, to match your conditions. That's one part of it. The other part is giving artists more insight on how the fans are consuming their music. So we're giving artists a lot more insights in terms of where their fans are listening to it, how their fans are listening to their music. Are they only listening to certain verses? Are they listening to it while they're working out or while they're on the beach or with their friends or whatever it might be? And then giving fans an opportunity to be connected with their artists more. So being able to collect more of their artist music and kind of indicate to the artist that they're a top fan. And then the when the artist does like an exclusive merch drop or an exclusive like meet and greet or something, they can really get a behavioral segmentation of who their fans are, what their fans are doing. So then they can target their fans better. Um, there's a lot of like other avenues that we've explored and things like that, but that's kind of the base of what Recordless is. And um, it really, it's, it's really my co-founder's like idea, dream and like passion. Um, he is a musician himself and is also a software engineer. And he, I met him like at the very start of the pandemic, right when I was like leaving Spark Neuro and um, my boss at Spark Neuro was actually really good friends with my co-founder Bradley. 
and we just got kind of introduced through that through a mutual love of music we started going to like some concerts together and then and then yeah started working on this um the idea like as it stands today has probably been around for about a year um but obviously a lot of development and, and progression before that as well great great that's a fascinating idea like you're you're kind of um connecting a few like very complicated pieces of the industry together which is just really awesome um i think it's 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 good innovation uh in, in itself and i'll i'll be really curious to see how how the whole concept progresses to 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 reality um yeah yeah awesome the the music aspect of the app uh and the marketplace aspect of the app i think these are the two two diff broad differentiations i might be wrong but that is it is what i could gather um how does it fit into the web3 or the nft ecosystem as of now because that ecosystem is again evolving day by day but how do you see it fitting to it as of now yeah i think it's still um for us to do it the right way because right now like nfts and web3 are kind of just like these like words that are being thrown around that are like oh everything is like music nfts and like we're a web3 and all this stuff um so so we want to do it in the right way where we're really using the potential of what an nft is and like what music nfts can actually be um so one of the ways would be like when we take a song we can create different like song flavors or song modifications so take a song and make a hip hop version of it or make like a sad version of it or an exciting version of it um and then locking those versions behind an nft which either that means the nft holds some membership to an artist fan club or means that that song version or song flavor is only available for a certain amount of time so really like adding to this dynamic aspect of music rather than just being like here's a music nft and you get to download a song from a dropbox link and then you can send that song to all of your friends it's really like saying that there's some value behind like you did a certain behavior you went on a workout and listened to a song or you went on a run on the beach and listened to the song and that's how you have like you earned this this nft this music nft and it becomes more of a collectible that indicates to your artist like you are doing a certain behavior to get more access to their music um that's how we're envisioning it right now we're also trying to add more of an aspect of community where you can you have these like again song collectibles you can maybe sell them to other people or have this nft marketplace where you can exchange these like fan experiences um and create like more of a community between the fans where you are all like part of this almost like gamified dynamic music experience and adding more of like this is your actual fan base who's like interacting with your music and not necessarily just the millions of followers you have on Instagram or Twitter or the millions of streams you have on Spotify but like really creating like a community of your fan base and like being able to incentivize and promote fan engagement awesome that's that's great and that's a unique way to look at it i think uh what's different it is from from like traditional web to uh, products is like even if let's say you're listening to music on spotify or you like you're watching a episode on netflix or a movie on netflix probably you don't get something in return right so you're trading basically time 
and you're also paying. But with this system, you, in the form of NFTs, in, in the form of collectibles, which you can again trade in the marketplace at the later stage, the artists are getting monetary rewards for creating music and the, the, the listeners are also getting compensated somehow uh, be, because they are listening to that particular artist, which is a good two-way connection rather than you know just being one way in, in the traditional web two web two system. So that's that's kind of unique and that's kind of interesting. It I'll be really curious to see how it plays out in the future. Yeah, exactly. We're really trying to add like a gamification aspect to music where it's kind of like listen to earn almost. Um, but like it's really like listen to like collect and like kind of be a part of this artist-based community. Awesome. Great, great, great. Um Brings us to probably the last part of uh, the conversation. Um, again, something which has, I'm really curious about. So you were a launch house resident, I think for their first residency or? Their first ever female founder residency, but they've oh. had uh, founder residencies before. Okay, awesome. I got to know about launch house quite recently. Like it was mostly, I, I watched a YouTube video that they, they shared on their channel and like it was the video explaining the concept of launch and stuff like that. Like the first impression was like this is this is like hype house for founders. Uh, but I think there's there's there are a lot of more aspects to it. Can you share your experience in general? Like how was it being there? How was it interacting with the other other folks around in the residency and some some learning some uh, connections that you made out there. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I think on paper, it can definitely come off as like a hype house where like, you're just having fun and like living in this house. Um, it was very much a professional, like serious experience. Um, we definitely like had fun and made connections and like had a good time with each other. But on a day to day basis, like I have never worked that much in my life, like you would just wake up and it was for in our house, it was like 20 female founders living in a house. Um, and you would wake up and just everybody's working. It's like silence in the house, everybody's working. And um, there's like, everyone's taking calls. We have like phone booths everywhere. So people are like on investor calls constantly, like raising money and like announcing rounds and things like that. Um, but very collaborative. It was a very collaborative experience. It was very much like just focused on building, like not even just building your company that you might be working on but like building yourself as like a brand almost um figuring out like what are the best ways to connect with people build connections maintain connections i think was a really important part um and yeah like just presenting yourself as like a founder slash builder in like the space um i think there were a lot of things i learned from there like even like more practical things of like how to talk to investors, how to build the right pitch deck and like all that kind of stuff, but also just like um, how to be more of like a, like I, I've always seen myself as like, oh, I have my PhD on one side and I have the, uh, the recordless app on one side and like these things are very separate. And then I have like the podcast as a whole separate thing. And like, they're all these yeah. different, like I'm a different person in each of them, but like being like, no, you can just be one person that just does all of these different things. And meeting other people that were like that, that were like, yeah, I have a background in like software engineering, but now I'm building this like company in fashion or something like where it seems like two different worlds, but they're like merging together and like 
you know, you can be one person that does all these like 10,000 different things and it's okay to be that person. Um, so I think that's, that was a big thing I learned. Um, another thing was Twitter. Like I am now like the biggest fan of Twitter. Like I've made investor connections. I've gotten invited to do talks places, like all just through tweeting. Um, and I think that it like sounds like the most like simple, like dumb little thing to learn, but that was like one of the first things we talked about on our like first night at Launch House. We had a Twitter talk by one of the founders, Brett gave this like Twitter talk he gives to every single cohort. And mm -hmm. from that day, he was like, everyone make your Twitter. Like I had a Twitter from high school, which was like me tweeting about like Drake lyrics. Like it was so dumb. And yeah. so I was like, I'm gonna redo this entire Twitter. Like if you scroll really, really far down, you will see like me retweeting like J. Cole and like Drake and The Weeknd and like all the stuff, it was all about music. Yeah. Um, and then I just like kind of rebranded my entire Twitter, started making it more like professional in a sense, but also just like your Twitter should be how you want to present yourself to the world. And I definitely didn't feel like my LinkedIn was doing that in any way. Yeah. It was just like LinkedIn was like, here is my resume, just like copy and paste it online. Um, and the Twitter was really like, here's me just like tweeting whatever comes into my head. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it's been an awesome tool. Like an insanely awesome tool. And it's hilarious because my cousin, Anil, who forced us to make, not forced us, but like pushed us to do yeah. the Behind Your Behavior podcast in a very positive way. Um, he actually told me about Twitter. He's been pushing Twitter on us for years and years. And it was like, you guys are underestimating Twitter. It's the best tool. Like he's really grown his company um, a lot through Twitter, like found a lot of hires, like all of his like releases with his company, Delphi. He posts on Twitter. Um, uses Twitter way, way more than LinkedIn. Like has always told us like LinkedIn is nothing compared to Twitter. And I never listened to him. And like after the first like two days, I like had to text him and be like, yeah, bro, I'm sorry. Like I had never listened to you and you were always right. Like this is the greatest tool ever. And I cannot believe it's just free for everyone to use. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that was, that was a big thing that I, that I gained from Launch House on top of a lot of other learnings and just life lessons. Awesome. Awesome. That's a great experience. Yeah. And I think Twitter is incredible. I have, I have a lot of guests on this podcast have been through Twitter. Like you as well. I think I saw a tweet of yours, something around Web3 and I just take, took a look at your profile and I was just blown away with, with the breadth of things that you've achieved. So it, it happened through Twitter. So that's a living example of how incredible the, the, the uh, whole service is. Um, Reflecting back to Launch House, so Recordless happened during Launch House or it happened outside of that? Yeah, so the idea was already a thing. We already had the technology built out um, before Launch House. You, they accept you based on um, basically like having some type of an idea. Like you have to have some, even if it's not like fully fleshed out, you have to have something that you're hoping to build over the month. Um, it definitely accelerated a lot over the past month because I was full-time. My co-founder flew out a couple of times and we really like just spent a month grinding on it. And even since then, the past month or so since Launch House, it's just been grinding on like, it's really like accelerated a lot. Um, but yeah, Recordless was was already a thing before I joined Launch House. That's awesome. Awesome. I, I personally also have like a sort of dream to do something like launch house, but for the podcasting world. So imagine having, you know, all these podcasts, 
podcasters living in a place together and, and brainstorming on podcast ideas, getting guests, networking and, and stuff like that. That's sort of in my mind, which I really want to do. So that's why, you know, like Launch House really fascinates me. The, the idea in itself that like a team of 10, 12 people living together, how much they can achieve together rather than, you know, somebody working at some uh, remote place uh, in, in the States and somebody somewhere else. So I think that's, that's an incredible and powerful experience altogether. Yeah. Um, I think there is, there's a lot of benefit, like physically living in the same space as, as other like like-minded people. Um, like there's obviously like things like we work where there's co-working spaces where you like go in, even if you're there for like 12 hours a day, but you're not living with them. Like, yeah. I think that was like the biggest part was even like at like night, it would be like 11 PM. We're like sitting in the hot tub, just hanging out. And even then our pr- conversations were productive. Like we were always like, even not like productive in terms of like, this is how you talk to an investor. Like, this is what my pitch deck looks like. Even just being like, I journal a lot and journaling really helps me like clear my mind. And these are some mindfulness practices that I use. It was always just like that idea of like personal growth um, that I was like every single conversation I constantly had, like even if it was like while I was making coffee in the morning in the kitchen, like every single conversation was productive. And it was really just because you're living and like breathing and, you know, like existing in the same space as these other people who are all just ambitious and like-minded people and, it was very like, it was really bonding. Like the, I think the 20 of us, like we still like text every single day. Like I woke up today with like 30 messages from them. Um, And I love that every day starts with like a launch house group chat. Um, Yeah, so we, I think we have like a bond that even if we're never all 20 of us physically in the same space again, like we have these connections for a lifetime, which I think that's really like the community that launch house is cultivating. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think the bonding will be very strong, probably stronger than, and probably that's why you know university and the campus life is is really special because it really accelerates or inculcates that that sort of bonding, which is not really out there in the professional world altogether. Yeah, that is that is great. Um, cool. Now we'll progress to some fun, lighthearted questions. We'll do it like a rapid fire, very quick round, so we can get them uh, all done within a short amount of time. Uh, first things first, I really want to talk about music because definitely, definitely it's one of your passions. My question was, without changing anything, what are the top three played songs on your Spotify currently? Like, just go through the list and play this now. Yeah, I knew this question was coming and I still don't have an answer for it, but I'm going to check right now. I, I know I'm always playing some pop smoke he's like always up there in like my top three um I've been listening to recently um cryptogram which is someone that my cousin showed me um most of my music is literally just my cousin like sending me a playlist and I'm like all right now this is just what I listen to for the next two weeks um so yeah cryptogram I've been listening to a lot there's a song called sneak away with me it's been a song Mm -hmm. I've been listening to a lot um, basically all of Pop Smoke I've been listening to. And then it's a song called Your Best Friend is a Hater, which I love the name of it. Um, it's by Emotional Oranges. And okay. that song, I think I listened to like once a day for the past like week and a half. Wow. That's, that's a nice choice. I've, I've, I've heard Pop Smoke, but 
I really haven't heard these last two songs. Uh, no Drake, that's a surprise, which is a bit. Yes, no, I, think I you, always you moved Drake on from always, Drake. No, Drake's always in rotation. I had to scroll through like twenty Drake songs, and I was like, I can't say Drake again and again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's he's always going to be up there at the top. Yeah, definitely. Cool. That's that's interesting. I would really love to know more about the playlist, but that that that'll be a conversation of some other time. Um, yeah. Moving ahead um, to to mindfulness, you touched base upon it very recently. So, I think with the amount of work that you do, you must be doing insane hours, like waking up up until three a.m. Uh, working on on stuff. So. How do you keep yourself sane in, in within those hours? Like, do you have any mindfulness practice practices, or you're just like going with the flow uh, type person? Um, I probably should have more mindfulness practices than I do. Um, I've been thinking of starting journaling. I haven't done it yet. I know that's that's like someone something that a lot of my friends do. That's really beneficial. Um, personally, I really I don't even know how to how I do all the things that I do. I, again, make like a lot of lists. I think that keeps me sane is like looking at my list and like I have a thing of like making like even the smallest task of item on my list because then checking it off like feels like you like accomplish things. Like even if it's just like check your email today, respond to this one person, like text back your friend. Like even if it's the smallest thing, like I'll make it onto my list and I'll check it off and that's been really helpful. Um, I definitely have like a good like nighttime routine where like I put a candle on, I like sit there. I think listening to music is probably like the biggest mindfulness thing. Like in the morning, as soon as I go to sleep, like every time I'm, I have like even like 10 seconds of free time, music is on. And I think that's probably like my way of doing mindfulness is just like listening to really good music. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, you don't have to be like way particular about the practices. Anything that relaxes you or distresses you is great. And music is a good 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 way uh, to do that um i generally am like fond of going on the walks uh, in the evening so i'll probably go for a 45 minute walk and i'll listen to a couple of songs or a podcast uh during that time just helps you know de-stressing me after a long day of work um i was actually listening to a podcast before this conversation as well uh i was listening to this uh Listen to Grimes actually. She was on Lex Friedman podcast uh, very recently, which is an interesting conversation. I'll really recommend you to listen to it if you listen to podcasts sometimes. Pretty, pretty. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's great. That's great. Um, moving ahead. So, another part of my research that I do for the podcast, your LinkedIn said that you were a part of the NYU Bhangra community which is really, really awesome. Do you still practice dance, probably Bhangra or some other form of dance, Indian, uh, something else? Are you into dance currently? So I, I really want to go back into dance. I've been dancing my entire life, mostly doing Bhangra, um, but also just general, like Bollywood dance. I was on like a dance team in high school, actually was head of the dance team in high school and then was on NYU Bhangra as well. And then I did like some like dance practices and things with like dance teams around where I where I was currently living so like I did some at Stanford I've joined a few here at USC um I thought of joining like a dance team like full out like they have 
a dance team for UCLA, like the Bruin Bhangra team is like very famous. Um, and one of my roommates actually is part of it. And I, yeah. like when I joined, I like meant to be part of it and I haven't, but I definitely still like probably am dancing like once a day. I go to a lot of concerts and um, a lot of like shows with my friends. So I'm definitely dancing. It's not necessarily always Indian music, but it's always like the hype and the Uber ride is always like some Indian music. So awesome. I try to keep dance part of my life. Awesome. That's great. That's great. Any particular songs that you, do you listen to Indian music now or? Oh my God. All the time. Okay. All the time. Any, yeah. any songs that come to your mind, which kind of, uh, like, which you like listen to on repeat or really like? Mahi Bay. Uh, yeah. Mahi Bay is like my top one song. Like whenever I'm with my friends, I'm like, um, can we play Mahi Bay? Like we will literally be out at bars and I've requested Mahi Bay at like an American bar out in LA. And they're like, yes. we don't know what that is. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, we need to be listening to Mahi Bay right now. Yeah, that's that's a great, great song. Yeah, yeah. brings brings the old, old memories. Pretty yeah, old I'm memory. all about the old, yeah, I'm all about the old, the old music and the old songs. Yeah, that that era of of, of Bollywood is completely different to what we see now, which is really, really awesome. Yeah, exactly. Great. Um, moving on to food. I really like to ask this from this question in particular because I'm I'm a big foodie myself and I really love to like know what the people are eating particularly so any favorite dish from the Indian cuisine that you that you like uh now could be like a snack a full course dessert or any, anything well pavaji easily pavaji is my favorite thing like when I'm whenever I go to India my family gets so annoyed because all I do is eat pavaji like we will go from one spot to the next and the only th thing I'll eat all day is pavaji and wow. it's just my favorite yeah coincidentally this is the second time somebody who's from the Indian background is in the U.S. saying that pav bhaji is their favorite food so it's something amazing. this is there's a connection between pav bhaji and living in the states probably like yeah. out there you get pretty good uh, Indian food right uh, yeah I mean I'm from New Jersey so there's a lot of really good Indian food in New Jersey we yeah. like basically like India just copy and paste it into yeah. America um but yeah and my mom makes amazing pavadi she's actually coming out to LA in a couple of days and that's like the one thing I was like you must make pavadi one day so I've told all my friends I was like this night my mom's making pavadi everybody come and we're eating my mom's pavadi wow. I'm just so excited I'm like counting down the days yeah I, I mean that's a that's a phenomenal dish really good with the taste yeah. and with all that butter really the bhaji definitely not Indian. healthy yeah, yeah definitely not healthy it's but uh, it's it's good sometimes especially when your mom is cooking so definitely special um just wanted to quickly touch base on books uh, another thing i'm i'm very much curious about i keep on asking for book recommendations uh, all along so are you reading something currently which book is on your bedside table um any top recommendations that you have? Yeah, so I, I used to read books a lot more when I was younger. And now I have like this bad habit of like, I only read books that are like part, but that have something to do with the brain. Um, so I haven't been reading books like for pleasure, which I really miss. But one of the books is called Behave by Robert Sapolsky. I actually have it literally right here, this book. 
It's like, oh, it's like massive, literally yeah. massive. And I'm still like, half, like not even halfway, no, a little bit more than halfway through it. Um, it like really talks about all of behavior. Like it starts from like generations ago of like how cultures began and civilizations began and the effect of culture and how that like influences like the split second before you make a decision and do a certain behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good book. It's by a really famous neuroscientist called Robert Sapolsky, who's actually at Stanford. Um, so yeah, I would really recommend that book. And it has like, it's a pretty good like overview of kind of neuroscience and behavior without getting like too technical into like the science behind it and like the analyses and things like that. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's like a, one of the books that I've, I always talk about. Awesome. Awesome. I'll link that book in the show notes so that anybody who's interested in reading it can access that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I'll probably read it myself as well. It sounds very, very interesting. Um, brings me to the last question. This, this one is, I borrowed it from another podcast, so it's not a, not like an original question, but really rings, rings a lot of bells when you try to answer it. So when you're like old and you look back on your life, how do you want people to remember you? Um, so I always, I always say rule breaker, which I know is not like a great thing to be remembered by, but I think like my background, at least getting into PhD has been very like non-traditional. I think even now, like being a co-founder and like working on different things while also getting a PhD and being a student is also a bit non-traditional. It's getting more like accepted and people are doing it a lot more now, but at least in the past, like five to 10 years, it's not been a traditional thing. And I've even like, when I talk about like what I want to do in the future, like what we talked about, I want to like merge this bridge between like industry and academia. So I think like maybe like trailblazer is a better way to put it, but kind of like always like pushing boundaries. I think that's kind of how I want to be remembered. Awesome. Awesome. And I am, I'm very optimistic that that's how you'll progress towards uh, in, in, in the future. Really a very good thought and you're working on, you know, really incredible stuff. Something people can only dream of. So definitely living a dream, I think. Um, I would love to end it uh, by quoting one of your tweets. I have your Twitter here and this one really inspired me. Uh, it, it goes something like this. I'm not a fan of having one career. I'm trying to do it all, which is really, really inspiring. And I really wish you all the best. Uh, and I'm like definitely wishing you success in pu- pushing science forward and pushing humanity forward and bridging that gap between science, technology and everything else that you do. So all the best. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Great. Hey listeners, thank you for tuning into Add and Collect. If you have any thoughts, feedback or suggestion about this episode or the podcast in general, feel free to drop a note on at intellect at the rate gmail.com that is a t intellect at the rate gmail.com until next time peace